Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Kevin Shea. Kevin is the best-selling author of 20 hockey books, including the centennial publication for our very own Toronto Maple Leafs, a celebration of the Hockey Hall of Fame, and his most recent book, working with well-known Maple Leafs irritant Matthew Barnaby on his autobiography called Unfiltered. Kevin is also a noted hockey historian with education roles for over 20 years at both the Hockey Hall of Fame and Seneca College. But Kevin is not just a hockey guy, but a music guy as well. He also had a whole music industry career filled with stories from his days working at various record labels with acts including Honeymoon Suite, Blue Rodeo, The Tragically Hip, Weird Al Yankovic, Aerosmith, and Guns N' Roses. Welcome, Kevin, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, first off, thanks a million for asking me, Andrew. This is outstanding to be able to talk to you. I, I hope that the Legends moniker is is uh, loosely used here, <laughs> but I'm doing very well, and I'm talking to you from Ajax, Ontario right now. Excellent. Well, I can certify you are a Toronto legend, and I can't wait to hear all your stories. Um, recently, the big news locally was that in conjunction with the Hockey Hall of Fame's latest induction class, Boreas Salming made an emotional return to Toronto just two weeks before his premature passing due to ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Kevin, what can you share about your experiences interacting with the King? Wow. Well, most recently, I was at the the Toronto Maple Leafs games on that Friday night and then again on the Saturday. The Friday night was the Hockey Hall of Fame game where the latest inductees are, are recognized. And it was so wonderful that that Borea flew in with his his wife, his partner, and family to to first of all say hello and perhaps even goodbye to his his Toronto fans, but also to uh, introduce himself and to welcome the new inductee. So it was very very emotional. The next night, Saturday night, was strictly a, a tribute to Borea and. Sitting in my, I see, I have season tickets and and uh, try and attend every game and watching the ceremony was very very emotional. Again, knowing that he was very ill, we didn't know how long we would see him and that it likely was a, a goodbye to his beloved Toronto. So that was the most recent thing. But I would have to think about a year ago, he was doing a signing here in Toronto at a place called Frozen Pond, and the uh, the proprietor, a guy named Hirsch Bornstein, is a longtime friend of mine and. And he said, hey, listen, Kevin, can you help me out that day? I'm always happy to. Every once and again, he calls upon me. And he says, can you, uh, can you meet with Borea Salming and, uh, and bring him to the signing and then take him off to the airport afterwards? And, and I was delighted to d- help out Hirsch for one thing, but also delighted to be in the presence of, of one of my hockey heroes. And so did exactly that. And, and he's just the most wonderful man and, and thought the world of, I'd met him on a couple of occasions before that at the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I can't even remember where else, but, but he's just a, a, a lovely man. And, and so we sat and we talked on the way there and got our pictures taken and took him to the airport afterwards. And it was just, uh, just a wonderful conversation about family, about music, uh, a little bit about hockey as well. And so, you know, I had already felt very warm towards Borea uh, and, I, and, it, and felt even more so once I had spent that much time with him and certainly was very emotional when we lost uh, Borea as well. 
Well, I'm very jealous of you, Kevin, to have been able to spend that time with him. He was my absolute favorite. I had the number 21 jersey myself. And I saw photos of you with Boria from that Frozen Pond signing. And what really strikes all of us is the how vibrant he looked at the age of 71, just, a, as you say, a year ago. And so it really is unfortunate. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Andrew. That was the thing that, that was so imposing all along. First of all, he seemed to really revel in returning to Toronto. It was a second home for him, no doubt about it. He'd had businesses here. He certainly had played here for many, many years. He was back on a fairly regular basis. Um, but every time you saw him, he, he was strong, muscular, virile. He was he looked like he could step out onto the ice. And we use that expression a little bit too freely, but he really did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and then to see a disease take that away from him and take that away from all of us was just uh, beyond reproach. It was a, a really, really sorrowful thing for a man who had offered so much to all of us as Maple Leaf fans, but also to the city and to the game as an ambassador as well. He was absolutely an icon here. Kevin, I do want to go all the way back with you. Get the Kevin Shea story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Wow, sure. So I was born in a, a, in a place called Windsor, Ontario. Grew up in a town, just uh, it was part of Windsor, but it was called Riverside. And that's where where I got my beginning, growing up in Riverside, playing with the Riverside Minor Hockey Association, uh, sitting with my dad and my brother on the couch in Riverside, watching Hockey Night in Canada every Saturday. We were a real Toronto Maple Leaf uh, hockey family. And and it was really special. Uh, you know, my I've lost my dad many, many years ago. My brother and I are still very, very close, but we talk about it a great deal. Windsor's an an odd town insofar as Detroit is a mile away. And many people are huge fans of Detroit Red Wings with good reason. It's, it's largely, I wouldn't say largely, it's partially a Francophone community as well. So there are a lot of Montreal Canadiens fans, but curiously, the percentage of Toronto Maple Leafs fans is very high and we were one of them. And, and uh, so we love the Toronto Maple Leafs and I'm old enough to have been able to see the, the dynasties of the 1960s and my dear father who knew his two boys were such fans would take us to the bus station after they won the Stanley Cup championship so we could pick up the the Toronto Daily Star the Globe and Mail whatever because there'd be more pictures and I guess for him more reading as well about our beloved Maple Leafs than our own uh, Windsor Star would have had so from the time we were born right through Till now, we are diehard Maple Leaf fans, and I'm right at the front of those in the, within the family. <laughs> and uh, when you were in school, Kevin, there's, as you know, so many different camps in high school. Were you in the jock camp or the music camp or the nerd camp? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've thought about this a lot. I straddled all the lines. <laughs> you, yes. I really <laughs> you did. Everything. You know, I, I was a, a, a good hockey player, a pretty good baseball player, but I certainly wasn't a jock by any means. But I was friendly with all of them because they were part of our teams or, you know, uh, whatever it happened to be. We were just friendly that way, playing on the high school team or, as I mentioned, with the Riverside Minor Hockey Association or Baseball Association. I was uh, pretty smart, so I got along pretty well with the nerds. Um, I was pretty funny, so, so I was kind of popular and got voted into student council and all those sorts of things. So the only one that I really didn't uh, didn't straddle was the tech boys. I was the furthest from being technically adept at all, but they respected me because I was 
yeah, nice guy and friendly and, and uh, one of the, uh, the student council people as well. So it was a mix of all of those, and I certainly didn't dominate any of them, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly do sound like a man for all seasons. Now, you ended up, uh, you went to University of Windsor. I did, yeah. I got my degree in communication studies in English and at the University of Windsor and started a career in, in radio shortly. In fact, I was working at the radio station while I was going to university. There's a, a radio station, there's a couple other, several radio stations in Windsor, as there are in, in most fairly large cities, and there was a station called CKWW, standing for D- Wonderful Windsor. And uh, so they hired me within the last week of high school, and uh, my job was to, to deliver roses, of all things. Windsor is the city of roses. And so <laughs> they, would, they had a contest going on that every hour on the hour... We will uh, award one lucky woman in the town with a, a, a rose and a vase, and it'll be delivered by our friend Kevin Shea. And so that was it. <laughs> I'd go there the next day and go to the uh, go to the uh, florist and pick up twenty four roses, and uh, or I guess yeah, I guess it was twenty four, and uh, and then deliver them to these people who were most uh, most pleased to receive a rose from anybody certainly from the radio station anyway so that started it they found out that i was pretty eager uh was mildly funny in the hall so i was i did a lot of production work uh, working on commercials uh, i did a comedy show on sunday nights at 11 till midnight uh, i did all kinds of things while i was going to university and they ended up paying for my university education which was wonderful well that is excellent you get your education plus it got you going because yeah. Sports and music. It sounds like we're well into the uh, the music part of your career. How did you jump into joining uh, record labels and helping work with actual uh, bands? Sure. So I graduated from university and started a radio career. Worked in top forty radio. So I started in North Bay as Special K to start your day, doing the morning show up in North Bay. Came back and worked at CKWW again. I worked uh, at my dream job, or one of them anyway, was a big station called CKLW. I did uh, production for them and then went to Montreal where things really kind of blossomed. I was overseeing the production department. I was uh, the music director and I was also an announcer. Too shy to use my real name on the air, so I went by the name Sky Kelly so Sky Kelly ruled the airwaves. Well, I didn't rule the airwaves. I was on the airwaves um, <laughs> on the weekends and filled in when people were sick or whatever. So I did that for a couple of years. Went to Ottawa, did the same thing. And then the station was going to go from being a top 40 station to being a music of your life station, playing Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, uh, the Andrews Sisters, things like that. And that really wasn't what uh, what was in my DNA at all. So when uh, RCA Records came calling and said, look, at you know, you've been a music director for a number of years and, and well-respected. Uh, we think that you'd be a good promotions representative. Would you care to join? So I did my interview and, and got a job with RCA Records as the Ontario promotion representative and started my, my record career that way. And who do you remember, Kevin, working with at RCA, uh, I guess, that would be of local interest here in Toronto? Oh, boy. Not necessarily local, but but... Artists that people would know would be, you know, Holland Oates, Whitney Houston, the Pointer Sisters, uh, a band called Parachute Club was from Toronto, so that would be somewhat local as well. We had a lot of fun with them during their uh, their rise, uh, rise up, as it were, um, <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> through their uh, through their brief career as well. So there were a lot of bands. You know, we had a lot of fun doing that, trying to get airplay 
much music was just starting, so trying to get video play. And then when the artists would come to Ontario, it would be my role to to take care of them, uh, setting up interviews, taking them for their interviews wherever I could, uh, that sort of thing. And it was a, a wonderful, wonderful career that I did for a number of years. I went from RCA to Warner Electra Atlantic, which is no, better known as Warner Music, did that and, and went to be the national promotions person. So oversaw promotions for the country, went to MCA Universal after that and did did uh, the same thing, oversaw the uh, promotion department, and then ended my career with a company called Attic Records, uh, a large independent out of Toronto that uh, that took care of, among other artists you mentioned earlier, was Weird Al Yankovic. So it was a long, wonderful career, lots of stories, covered everything from top 40 to heavy metal to, you know, pan flute artist, you know, you name it, we did it. But it was a, a wonderful, wonderful career. Had me in the in the clubs a lot through that time. Well, I got to tell you, Kevin, it's strange how life works because just last night, my wife and I went to see Glass Tiger. Oh, there we go. At Massey Hall. Right. Opening act, The Parachute Club. Well, you know what? I, I saw that advertised and I kicked myself that I didn't take advantage so the lady I was dating back in the time worked for uh, for Virgin Records, and they had tried to sign Glass Tiger when they were known as, I can't even remember the name of the band. Tokyo. There we are. Thank you, Andrew. You're right. So I got to know the boys in Glass Tiger quite well, and through the years had booked them for various things. But Parachute Club was a band that was really close to my heart because I loved the music. I was there from their first album through through most of their career at the time, you know, for the first uh, three albums anyway. And, and we had a lot of fun with them and really enjoyed my time. So good for you to do that. Some great Canadian music and a lot of hits on that stage last <laughs> night. And Massey Hall, what a venue as well. Wow. I have to tell you, I hadn't been since it had been renovated. And to your point about lots of hits, uh, we, we were well versed in Glass Tiger. And I have to tell you that another Toronto legend is Mr. Alan Frew, who was on this podcast before but for parachute club both my wife and i well, you rise up maybe maybe i don't know if we know anymore i gotta tell you of the 10 to 12 songs they played we ended up recognizing all of them it's a wonderful band we don't hear them as much anymore on the radio or online or whatever it happens to be just because they they haven't toured for a long long time uh but they had a, a fair number of hits back in the day and just a, a wonderful band full of energy as well so i'll bet you you must have really enjoyed that show andrew we loved it, yeah. and I want to. I want to ask you about some uh, acts and get your stories about working with them. Uh, how about Blue Rodeo? Oh man, sure. Well, again, one of my favorites. It was at Warner Music at the time, and and so they had just been signed. A great story, actually. They had just been signed, and and their first album, Outskirts, was out, and and the band was insisting on one particular track as the opening track to the album, and it. Failed miserably. The only support they got was from Chum FM. And we think, I think anyway, it was because the drummer's wife was one of the announcers on Chum FM at the time. Okay, good enough. Uh, Ingrid Schumacher, a terrific, uh, terrific announcer. So, so they came back and we debated long and hard, what do we do here? Because if the second track didn't work, they would, I don't know if they'd be dropped from the label, but certainly that would be probably spell the end of that particular album and it certainly wouldn't give you much momentum from there so we knew that there was a song called try that was on the album 
And Try was a magic song. Whenever they played at the Horseshoe, that was the one. People lined up down the street to see them and demanded that they sing Try at least once, usually twice during their set. Wow. So we knew that that was a magic song. But in the the lexicon of, of record promotion, you save your ballad for the usually for the third single. You go with two that are fairly up-tempo and then come back with the ballad. Well, we didn't know that we had that opportunity, so we went with Try. And it took a lot of <laughs> a lot of conniving to get it played. Much music was very supportive. Um, but I tried to get Top 40 Radio to play it, and it was really, really difficult because it just, it's a great song, admittedly, to everyone. But you know, one of the the programmers said, oh, Kevin, if I was to put that on the air, it would just zap all the energy out of my station and I can't play it. So we did everything that we could to do it. And so I did a, a terrible, stupid promo, not terrible necessarily, but cheesy promo thing. I, uh, I sat in front of CFTR radio at the time, which was on, on, uh, Adelaide and was it on Adelaide? Richmond, maybe. And, um, I, on a, on a mechanical horse, with a, a sign that said something about, hey, why don't you try Blue Rodeo or whatever, and sat outside. But, it, it, you know, it was plugged in to a generator, but I still had to feed quarters into it. So I had a bag of quarters there sitting outside. It was a cold day and kept feeding it in. Finally, the program director came out and said, look, Kevin, if you believe in the song that much, we'll, uh, we'll play the song. We'll try it anyway. To you, the bad uh, pun there but anyway we'll give it a shot and we'll see and the phones blew up and it did very well it was already being played at several other stations including chum fm etc and uh, so not because of that necessarily but that was one of the things that helped break the record in in toronto sometimes you do what you got to do so so that was it and once try took off then the band took off in a big big way and went from there so lots of great wonderful stories about try uh, sorry about Blue Rodeo, rather, and and so many w- just great, you know, Jim Cuddy and, and Greg Keeler, just wonderful songwriters and fabulous guys as well, and just very fortunate to have been there at the beginning of their career and still can, can when I run into them, can uh, call them friends as well. Oh, that's great. And as you know, they're still going and still yeah. uh, playing. Absolutely. Kevin, how about Honeymoon Suite? Any uh, involvement with them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they had already been out with uh, with their first album by the time I joined Warner's. So New Girl Now was already a hit. They'd had a couple of hits at that point. So I came on shortly thereafter. And and again, great people to work with. And I, again, I can call them all friends now. Uh, Derry and, and uh, Johnny and Dave. Well, actually, it's mostly the same band is back touring again. But uh, from back in the day, Derry and Johnny, Dave Betts, a great friend, pardon me as well. And so we we had a lot of fun back in the day. I I just remember how dashed I was when they went down to Los Angeles to record. And we figured this was the big American breakout that every band in Canada hopes for. And Johnny was hit, Johnny, the lead singer, was hit by a car. And it set the whole project way back uh, for a long time. And, and it took away a lot of the momentum at the time because they just weren't prominent at the time. They couldn't tour. They were recording, but the album hadn't been released yet. And, and so it was really just an unfortunate timing at that point. Whether it would have broken them more in the U.S., I don't know, but we certainly hope so. But from there, we went on and, and uh, 
still had a number of hits here in Canada, watched the band tour. They played incessantly, which was a big part of their success, and uh, loved seeing them every time we went. They just were a terrific band and just great guys as well. Well, you had all this great times with big bands here domestically, but you also had some great times with big bands worldwide. And one that caught my eye is you took Aerosmith to see an Aerosmith tribute band. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was uh, when I was at Warner's, I guess. Yeah, it would have been at Warner's. And um, so they were in town and I took them to Much Music and they shot some pool uh, across the street. We taped a piece there. And while we were there, you know, they got to to know the the record guy fairly well, and they, and so um, so Stephen Tyler and, and Joe Perry took me aside and said, "Hey, listen, you know, we were in town for a couple of days. We just got out of rehab not that long before. Um, first off, do do you know of a, a gym that we can go to, or can you arrange to help us go to a gym? And secondly, anything to do in town tonight that might be kind of fun that." takes us away from any uh, indulgences that we have to stay away from i said well geez let me let me get back to you so i contacted a couple of gyms that were downtown and they were more than happy to not close off the gym but to make it available uh just about nine o'clock so there wasn't a, a great number of people there they were at work at that point and for perry and tyler to uh, to go in and, and work out and I worked out as well. They they worked out pretty hard, especially <laughs> Joe Perry. I kind of did the treadmill and watched out of the corner of my eye as we went. Um, but then that night, so I suggested, listen, have you ever seen an Aerosmith tribute band? And they looked at each other and started to laugh and said, no, and why would we want to do that? And then they said, you know what? That would be fun. Why don't we do that? <laughs> So I'm trying to remember where the band was playing. And I, it, I believe it was upstairs at what was then the Hard Rock Cafe at Young and Dundas. So I made the arrangements, but I because they were dry and they had to stay away, I had to have a special section for them where no alcohol would be served to anybody. They uh, drank Perrier, so they didn't have Perrier at the bar, but the, the bar manager said, we'll buy some and we'll make sure we have lots of uh, Perrier on ice for you. And so, so that's exactly what we did. And there was a band called Toys in the Attic that played around. They, I think they still play around it. And so we were able to usher the band in while the band was playing pretty surreptitiously, thank goodness. And the band was playing the current album. Oh, my God, I wish I could remember what it was. Dude Looks Like a Lady was on it, and I can't remember it offhand. But anyway, it was just out. And the band was playing tracks from the album. And the guys were getting the biggest kick out of it. Like, the band really nailed it. Mm. But they were laughing back and forth, and Tyler would, you know, who seems to, Stephen Tyler seems to have a great sense of humor, and he would say, hey, hey, Joe, to Joe Perry, the guitarist, he said, is the lead singer supposed to look like me? He's ugly like you, Perry, <laughs> and they were killing themselves laughing. And we stayed for, it wasn't a, a full set, but the guys were really enjoying what was going on, but then people started to realize that uh, that it wasn't the entire band, but there were uh, three members of the band that they were there and they started to crowd around. And so the guys thought, Hey, listen, you know, this has been real fun, but why don't we head back to the, uh, the hotel then? So that's exactly what we did. But yeah, it took them to go see uh, an Aerosmith tribute band and the guys loved it, really enjoyed the evening as well. And it was a real thrill for me, obviously, to be able to put it together. Sure. Now what's interesting about that is keeping Joe Perry and Steven Tyler away from alcohol but was that your usual MO when you were working with different acts or was your role more to get alcohol? 
Well, so first off, I don't drink at all, so so no drugs or anything like that. So I was the right promo guy there. Um, I never never secured drugs for any of them or women or guys or anything like that. If they chose to do any of that stuff, they could do it on their own. Um, but if we were, you know, I mean, I, most times the band was performing, so they would have alcohol in their in their dressing room. So I didn't need to worry about that. They could have a couple of beers or whatever it was that they, they enjoyed. They could do it after their show was over. So there was no no worries that way. If we were just doing a promo uh, day, just taking them around for interviews, lunch was usually on, on tap or or dinner or something like that. And if they chose to have something then, that would be fine. But really, it was it was pretty safe. Nobody ever asked me for anything more. Uh, nothing was more was offered. If they wanted a beer or something, that was fine too. So it was all all good. As far as uh, Joe Perry and Steven Tyler, they had what they called the, they didn't call them this, but uh, in, with a later band, um, they had what they called the surf Nazis. These were good looking, really built gentlemen who escorted them around. So the Aerosmith guys didn't call them surf Nazis, but they had these people with them just to make sure that they stayed on the straight and narrow. Ah. So it was it was all fine, and I certainly wasn't going to do anything. And even if they begged me or whatever, hey, guys, you know, that's that's not happening. <laughs> if you go back to your hotel, you do what you do. But but uh, while you're here, my MO is that uh, that we keep you on the straight and narrow, and we've got your friends here to do, to, uh, to do the same thing for you. Well, I would think keeping those two guys on the street and era would be a challenge, but maybe the bigger challenge would have been the boys from Guns N' Roses. What was your experience like with them on a, a PR tour? So I didn't do a PR. Well, actually, I did do one. Um, I never did meet Axl Rose. Ever did. He never showed up for anything. But the neat thing about it was was we had Slash and, oh, my God, the bass player's name. Duff. Duff, Roman. Or, uh, sorry, uh, Duff. Duff McKagan. McKagan, right. Duff Roman was a radio programmer. Sorry, Duff McKagan. So they were going to do the interviews the next day. So I went and met them at the hotel, and they were sitting outside in the hallway, slumped down, and I thought, oh, God, here we go. And hey, Kev hey, Slash, hey, Duff, it's Kevin from the record company. Hey, great to see you. Hey, we had our bachelor party last night for Duff. I thought, oh, God, here we go. And yet they were terrific. They were great in the interviews. We did, took them to Much Music, took them to Q107 Radio, etc. They were fantastic. But but Axel wasn't wasn't prominent there at all, wasn't evident at all. And then I stayed for the show, and we were taking some contest winners back. Slash and Duff were there. I think it was just the two of them. And we waited for Axel, and we waited for over an hour with some contest winners from across Canada and some radio programmers, and he never did show up. And so yeah. never did meet Axel, I'm afraid, and that was... You know, that was kind of back in the day. He did his own thing, and that was all part and parcel of it. But uh, but Slash and Duff couldn't have been nicer, both during the interviews and meeting the contest winners and the radio programmers as well. And uh, another huge name that you worked with, Kevin, was Don Henley. What was your experience like with him? Oh, he was wonderful. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of all of the people that you've talked about, but particularly like Don Henley, like the Love the Eagles Really enjoyed Don Henley uh, on a solo level as well, and he was total professional. He was he he knew his value. He knew that okay, Kevin, you've got or I guess they told the record company in general, you know, you've got between these hours to do whatever you need to do. I'll do anything between those hours, but I won't work outside of them. That's fine. And so we did uh, interviews with Don Henley. He is so well spoken. 
He's got such a wealth of, of musical background, and he was lovely to, uh, to me and anybody that he met at that time as well. Went to see the show, several of them through the course of, of his career, and uh, just a, a master on the stage as well. So yeah, really enjoyed that one particularly. The artist that you're perhaps most connected with in my reading up on you was uh, Weird Al Yankovic. And <laughs> what was Weird Al Yankovic? Was he a genius or was he just an eccentric or how would you describe him? And what was your relationship like with him? Well, to this day, he's still a dear friend. Al is a very, very interesting character. He is brilliant. He literally is brilliant. Uh, you know, he, he's got his degree in architecture, which he's never used like so many of us, made up silly uh, lyrics to songs, but it turned into a career for him. He thought it was going to be one song, and it turned into a, a career that has taken him to uh, to this day as well. He's a wonderful, wonderful man, um, personable, soft-spoken, vegan. You'd never know with all of the crazy songs about, uh, about food that he's had, but here's <laughs> yeah. a guy that you could take to Freshie or someplace like that to have a have a meal and, and uh, just lovely, lovely guy. He was the hardest working artist I've ever had to, to deal with. So just as an example, when he would come to Toronto, he, he would say things to me beforehand. Hey, look forward to working with you, Kevin. You can't work me hard enough. And I love a challenge. So we would start our day doing the radio stations at six o'clock in the morning. And we would hit as many as we could, radio stations, TV stations, doing morning shows, um, through the day, uh, we would go from six in the morning till, oh, I don't know, probably eight at night, stop for lunch somewhere in there. But if we could fit an interview over lunch, that would work as well. But his knack was, was really special that he can catnap. So if I had to drive from, say, Q107 at Young and Bloor to CFTO TV in Scarborough, he would take advantage of those 20 minutes or whatever to fall asleep in the back seat catch up and go from there. And then when we got there, he was sharp as a knife and, and was great from there. So that was just the promo day. Then we would have set, set it up with Much Music to do these Much Music specials, L Music. So we would have a dinner and then we would be in the studio at Much Music to tape all kinds of little skits or intros or whatever it happened to be. And he would work until, I don't know, midnight or one. And then he would sit and oversee the editing process. So here's a guy who had flown in from L.A., picked up at the airport, worked from six till goodness knows when, get a couple of hours sleep, and then started again the next day. And that was Al. He was just like that. He, he, And that's part of the charm, I think, is that he's a real character. He puts on the persona when he gets there. So he's Al Yankovic when he's in the car. He, he will not be called Weird Al. He'll be called Al. Mm -hmm. and, and when we get to the uh, the place, all of a sudden, he, behind the mic or when the uh, TV camera comes on, he's Weird Al, and, he, and he's part of the persona, and people love what he does. And he's a hardworking, lovable man. I just think the world of Weird Al Yankovic. It sounds like a true professional. He absolutely was, Andrew. Hey, Toronto, the GTA, and parts beyond. Sign up for a subscription box from the Henderson Brewing Company, where every month you will get the special seasonal release, plus three other unique taproom-only beers mailed anywhere in Canada. Available in four, six, or 12-month subscriptions, these packs are great for any beer lover, including, yes, yourself. Order now at hendersonbrewing.com or visit their taproom and retail store at 128A Sterling Road along the West Toronto Railpath. 
Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends Podcast, a great local partnership. Now, Kevin, you got all these great experiences, all these great stories from this music industry career, but you got this whole other career as a author and a sports writer. How did you evolve and become a, a sports writer and author? Well, it's the craziest thing. So I hang out with with a small group of of dear friends. To this day, they're my best friends, but but they were all from the music industry as well. So there are two in particular, Steve Waxman and Kim Cook, who are are especially dear to me. And so we would go out for dinner when we were all working in the music industry. At that time, Kim was my promotion partner at Warner's and and uh, Steve was working at Attic Records. As the years went on, I went to Attic, Steve went to Warner's, Kim was at Warner's for a while and then started his own record company. Anyway, that's another story. But anyway, we would get together on a regular basis. We were all single, we were all working in music, so we would get together, oh, at least monthly, probably more than that, just to catch up on what was going on, talk about girls, talk about music, talk about sports, whatever it happened to be. We've all got partners now and, and life has moved on and the conversations have changed their, their tenure to some degree. But going back to 1999, we, uh, were exchange- we were having our Christmas get together, the three of us, and we all exchanged gifts. And they said, listen, Kevin, Steve and Kim, well, they didn't say that, but Steve and Kim were going together to give me the Christmas gift. I said, wow, that's really special. That's great. And it was a great big box. So when it was my turn to open my gift, I opened the uh, the box and it was filled with odd things, pads of paper and pens, floppy disks, which gives you an idea of what the, the <laughs> tenure. Floppy disks. Yeah. Um, and a book called Writing for Dummies. And they said, look, Kevin, every time we get together, you tell us these great stories. You're going to write a book. I said, guys, I'm not writing a book. I wouldn't have a clue how to write a book. They said, you're writing a book. I said, well, geez, really? So, so I started to think about it. I had, you know, I, I had written newspaper articles and magazine articles, but certainly had never written a book. So I came up with a topic and decided I would give it a try. I, I wrote a precy of what the book was about. I did a, a sample chapter and I sent it to every publisher I could find at the library, copying down their addresses. And I got rejection letter after rejection letters or no, re- no response at all. But finally, I got a call, and it was from a, a company called Fen Publishing. And they called me up and said, listen, uh, Kevin, we love your passion. We love your writing, but we don't want your story. But we think you'd be great for one that we've, uh, we've contracted. Would you meet us for lunch? I said, I'd, I'd be happy to. So we met at a pool hall, of all things. <laughs> and the publisher, I, I, I'd never met him, but I, he walked in with a, a, a suit and tie. So I knew which one he was. And there was a man he was with that I recognized. He was quite physically disabled. Um, he, And I'll get back to that in a moment, but I, I knew who it was. It was a gentleman named Tom Smythe, who was the son of Stafford Smythe, who had one of, been one of the co-owners of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and the grandson of Con Smythe, who had started the Toronto Maple Leafs back in 1927. So we sat down and talked, and Jordan asked me a couple of questions. And then Tom asked me some questions. Now, Tom had had cancer and had had, uh, it, it was uh, a, a cancer of within his throat. So he'd had his jaw partially removed. His ear had been partially removed. He was quite scarred. And, and it was a challenge for him, for sure. But he asked me some questions. And I, I knew the Smythe family inside and out at that point. 
And so he turned to Jordan and said, we found our guy. So Jordan came back to me and said, okay, Kevin, do you think you can write a book? I said, yes, I do. They said, okay, can you write it in a month? I said, yes. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. I was still working at the record company at the time, Attic Records. They said, okay, well, we need you to, uh, to submit it by whatever the date was, end of June, I think it was. And uh, so you'll have to interview Tom a great number of times and write this book, do your research, and, and it'll be on the shelves this Christmas. So it's like, oh, my God, okay, great. Well, it was taxing because not only was I working full-time and out in the, in the clubs working with the different artists, but now I had to write a book as well. And I had to interview a man who, whose energy lacked a fair bit. He was the most wonderful man. Tom Smythe was a, a man I care for a great deal. He's since passed away. But just because of the number of surgeries he had and, and his cancer diagnosis, it was a real challenge for him. So he didn't work at the same speed that I did necessarily. But we got the book done. I submitted it on time. I don't know how I did. I don't know that I slept at all. And the book came out that fall. So I got my copy uh, from Jordan Fenn, and I was so thrilled. I had It was called Center Ice, and there was the Smythe name. And I was able to get Wayne Gretzky to write the foreword. And my name is on the front cover as well. I opened it up. All It was all printed in blue ink. It looked phenomenal. The problem was there were more typos than I've ever seen before. <laughs> oh, boy. Andrew, I'm really, really anal. When I submit something, I've made sure that it's uh, not like that. But the very first page was a picture of Jean Beliveau of the Montreal Canadiens holding the Conn Smythe Trophy. An appropriate shot, but it had, instead of Jean, J-E-A-N, it had John, J-O-A-N. Oh, no. I didn't submit that. Come on. Then I'm going through it, and I, and I see that, that Tom Smythe's, fa uh, not his favorite, his, his uh, best friend is a gentleman named Doug, I can't remember his last name, Pickle, I, no, Doug, can't remember. Anyway, it's Dog through the entire book. Oh, my mm. God. And the J.P. Bickle Trophy, which is given to valuable uh, employees and players from the Toronto Maple Leafs, was J.P. Pickle Trophy through the entire book. So I called Jordan at 11 o'clock at night, said, Jordan, I've just got the book. you gotta, you got to stop the presses. He said, Kevin, I can't. It's in the stores now. It'll sort wow. of in, the, in the warehouses. What do you mean? I said, there are typos through the whole thing. And when I went back, they weren't in the manuscript. He said, well, Kevin, don't worry. We'll get it in the second printing. Well, it sold a ton of books, but we never did get to a second printing. <laughs> he had uh, pressed 15,000 books. So that's a lot of books for Canadians, uh, Canadian hockey books. Uh, so it the reviews were <laughs> odd. They were, hey, this is a really great story. What a, what a fascinating family. Too bad the guy can't write. Or too bad the guy oh, no. didn't have a proofreader or whatever it happened to be. So that's the way the career started, Andrew, if you can believe that. But anyway, it got me going and, uh, and uh, set me on a path. And I was with Ben Publishing until they went bankrupt and have since moved on. And as you mentioned earlier, we've now had our 20th book out there. So it, it didn't start particularly well, but I, <laughs> but I got a lucky break, and there we go. Off we went. Well, well, that's an amazing art, Kevin. And I, I do want to talk to you about the most recent book, out now with Matthew Barnaby, Unfiltered. And there's a great anecdote that kind of catches most people's eyes, and that's about what happened at the NHL entry draft in 1992 when <laughs> the Buffalo Sabres interviewed Matthew Barnaby. Do you want to tell this little anecdote? Sure. Well, I'm going to step back a tiny bit here. So Matthew had been the very, very final uh, draft choice 
for the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. And uh, so the chances of him going to the NHL were pretty remote. But he really worked at it. He he was an agitator. He got into a ton of fights, which is something he had never done before. But anyway, all of a sudden he gets uh, seen by a number of scouts, including the Buffalo Sabres. So when they interviewed him beforehand, they said, uh, listen, Matthew, okay, now we've, we've watched you play. You've got pretty good hands. You certainly are a good team player. What happens if, if uh, Bob Probert comes to you at 8.05 and says, Barnaby, we're going tonight? What do you say? And Barnaby says back to the scout, huh, well, I'm going to have bet beat him to it. At 8.02, I would have said, Probert, you ready to go tonight? You and me, buddy. And there we go. So that's the way it went. So he does get uh, drafted by the Buffalo Sabres. And uh, again, it was a long shot that he was going to make it, but he proved his, his worth and, and made the team and had a long a long career with Buffalo. Then he, he went to a number of different teams, had a good NHL career overall. But it, again, it didn't start off in uh, ways that you would imagine were going to lead to the National Hockey League. Well, he is a fascinating guy. And in every interview I've heard with him, it's very clear he would do anything, and I mean anything, to get the best of his rivals and to win, and hence the title of your book, Unfiltered. He was clearly very comfortable telling stories from his entire career and stories about other people. I wondered what your writing process was with someone like Matthew Barnaby, who uh, was very free to speak, but uh, I don't know how you draw the lines on where you put things in the book or maybe to protect or not incriminate other people. You leave stuff out. Yeah. What was your process? Well, I'm going to step back once again. I keep using that term, but I hope you'll excuse me here. Please so go ahead. I'd had a, a fairly unfortunate uh, circumstance writing a book for another player. And I had told my wife, look, I will never do another autobiography, ever. Not a chance. I'll write more books, but they won't be autobiographies. Well, so Matthew Barnaby was a guy, I, I used to oversee a, an event called Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer. And uh, in, in doing that, we get teams to register. And if, they're, if they are one of the top fundraising teams, they get to draft a celebrity onto their team. So I always tried to freshen up the list of, of celebrities that we would have. And we had some wonderful, wonderful players through the years. And I thought, you know, Matthew Barnaby might be interesting. Um, I, you know, I'll try him. I don't really know him, but I see him on social media, and I'm going to try and see. So I connected with him, and and uh, so he said, yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to come out to Road Hockey to Conquer Cancer. That would be great. What I found was a really special guy. I only knew him as the agitator that get drafted high because they've got good stories, but aren't necessarily the uh, the, the people that you you are thinking are going to be the best ambassadors for the sport. But Matthew was exactly that, Andrew. He played in the game for sure. He was drafted fairly high, but he played in his games. They played five games through the course of the day. But through the course of the day, he went to every single pad, shook hands with as many players as he possibly could, and thanked them for supporting cancer research. And so I thought, this is a really special guy. And then I found out that through the three years that he was one of our celebrities, the teams that drafted him, he kept in touch with them. And whenever he came to Toronto, he would take them out for dinner and drinks. So this is most unusual. Most, it's a great day and that's the last of it. That's fine. We'll, we'll hear from you next year, maybe, Kevin. But this is a great guy. So when Matthew called me up, it, I happened to be sitting in my driveway about to uh, head in for the Christmas uh, break a couple of years ago. And uh, he contacted me and uh, said, hey, Kevin, just wanted to wish you all the best. I'm thinking of writing a book. And I thought, okay, he's going to ask me some advice or publishers or whatever. 
when he finished the conversation with, yeah, and I think, you know, I've read a couple of your books. I read the Derek Sanderson book. I read whatever else I can't remember offhand. Um, I thought you and I could work well together. Well, at the end of the conversation, I went to the house and said, you know that promise, Nancy? Yeah. Well, I've got another, another autobiography I'm writing. And here we go. So he was a guy who got under my skin when I was, because I'm such a big Leaf fan, when uh, when Sabres or whichever team he was playing on were there. But I thought a great deal of him. I thought, I, I thought what a wonderful guy. And I knew that there'd be some great stories. I had the experience with Derek Sanderson in dealing with uh, great stories or, or crazy stories or whatever. Um, so we agreed to work on it. So we spent some time in person, but most of it was done by way of either a phone call or by way of Zoom. And he said straight up from the very first uh, conversation, Kevin, there are no bars at all on what we're going to talk about. It's warts and all. I've done some things I'm not proud of. I've done a lot of things I'm very, very proud of. And But I just want to tell the story. I think I've got a good story of, of perseverance, of dedication, um, of love for family. But also we can tell some crazy stories in there too. And we did exactly that. There were some areas where it was uncomfortable for me. Uh, I think it was uncomfortable for Matthew too, but he insisted. There was some uh, some marital discord that, I'll, that uh, is in the book, and that was... Not something that he's particularly proud of, but it was part of his story as well. Uh, there was a drinking and driving situation that ended his broadcast career, which was really unfortunate, but it's it was part of his story and had to be told too. And maybe there are lessons to be gleaned from that as well, Andrew. But it's an entertaining book. It was one that I was very pleased to be part of, and I think he's very proud of it as well. Well, the reaction's been tremendous. Yeah. And, uh, I I think it's uh, just as you're saying, the, the theme that really came out for me was the perseverance. I mean, he really stuck with it. He really did. And, and, you know, so here's a guy who, again, unlikely to have played in the NHL. He goes to Buffalo and, you know, he, he's got this reputation as being an agitator and a guy who will drop his gloves. But he's got Rob Ray. He's got Brad May. He's got other guys there. So he could pick and choose when he wanted to go. The problem was when he went to teams like Tampa, for example, he all of a sudden was the enforcer. So Matthew is, what, six foot, probably 180 pounds, 190 pounds. All of a sudden, he's he's the enforcer, and he has to take on heavyweights, Georges Larocque, Gino Ojic, et cetera, et cetera. And, and as he would say quite readily, he's probably been in through his junior and NHL careers, 400 fights. And he's probably lost 398 of them. <laughs> but you know what? It, he stood up for his teammates. He was never going to back down. It sometimes changed the, the, the direction of the game. Um, and that was part of his game. And that's what gave him a National Hockey League career. So when he had some people who could have his back, it was a whole lot easier than when he was the guy, when he was playing five minutes a game. And it was only, okay, Barnaby, you're out there, and he knew damn well that the gloves were coming off and he was going to get pummeled, but his his M.O. was hang on. He, he had great, <laughs> we talked about perseverance, he could hang on, he could take a lot of hits, the other guy would be tired, he could get a couple of shots in, that was pretty much his <laughs> M.O. as far as his uh, pugilistic side of things with the National Hockey League. 
Well, certainly a, a guy who likes those kind of players is Don Cherry. I, I find Don Cherry's kind of disappeared. Have you had any interactions or experiences with him? I was curious. No, I haven't personally, but I know that uh, I had mentioned earlier on about Hirsch Bornstein of Frozen Pond, and Hirsch is uh, quite friendly with Don, has had a couple of signings with him as well. He's chosen, you know, since his, his uh, leaving the broadcast side of things, to have a, a, a lesser profile and that's fine he still gets out to hockey games he does some, a little bit of unprofessional i don't mean unprofessional sorry of amateur scouting as well he just loves hockey a great deal he still does some uh, some fundraising for cancer research having lost his first wife to cancer as well so he's still out there but not nearly as as uh, widely acclaimed or as widely uh, prominent as he was when he was on hockey night in canada now we talked about my favorite player borea salming your favorite player was Eddie Shack. What were your experiences like with the man from the pop shop? Oh, boy. Well, when I was a little boy, this I was already a big fan. And we were visiting my father's sister, my aunt, in Brampton. And uh, she was about as far from hockey as anybody ever existed. But while we were there, you know, and she didn't have any little boys of her own. We were seven and five. My I was seven. My brother was five. And uh, and, and one point she said, Hey, do you boys like hockey by any chance? Oh, do we ever? Well, have you ever heard of the Toronto Maple Leafs? That's our favorite team. She said, well, I'm, I'm friends with a, a guy named Eddie Shack. Do you know him? He's my favorite player. <laughs> she said, hang on. She picked up the phone and called up a car lot and said, Eddie, have you got time to meet a couple of boys? My, my nephews are in town. We couldn't believe it. We'd never met a hockey player before, but here we were meeting our idol. And here he was, all six foot of him, and we were all of whatever we were at the time, I don't even know, four foot, I don't know, looking up at our idol, and there he was, you know, dressed very nicely in a nice uh, pair of slacks, a nice short sleeve shirt, and he couldn't have been nicer. He signed autographs for every kid on my hockey team. Uh, he, he had little, little uh, four by six postcards. He signed one for every kid on the team. He signed for us. Lots of pictures were taken. My brother and I were in heaven. We couldn't believe that uh, that we were getting uh, we were meeting our idol. Years go by. I was working in the radio industry. I was working at that station CKLW down in Windsor. And there's a media game at Windsor Arena. And sure enough, Eddie Shack is on my team. I can't believe it. And I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little little gray here. But anyway, he was great. He was uh, he was terrific. He and Pitt Martin had a set play. I didn't know it, though. I was playing defense, so he was taking the face off and would draw it back to Pitt Martin, who was circling behind, but I kept intercepting the pass. So he came over and berated me on the ice at Windsor Arena in front of my family. Let the puck go, can't you? Okay, okay. <clears throat> we got to the dressing room afterwards, and, and here's my idol naked in the, sh in the shower coming out, and he, and he said, hey, guys, take a look. Uh, built like a moose, hung like a mouse. And he laughed gloriously. <laughs> I never looked to check if he was telling the truth, but here's my idol all of a sudden naked in front of me at the thing. So I, I'd met him on a number of occasions after that. And there were, uh, there were always crazy times, but he was always very, very nice to me. Uh, the odd time I would bring up the story of being a, a little boy meeting him and he didn't remember it and I didn't expect him to remember, but, but he enjoyed hearing the story and thinking that all of a sudden this, whatever I was at the time, 50-plus-year-old man had met him when he was playing with the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 1960s, driving his dune buggy around. So, so yeah, so a wonderful memory of, of my childhood idol. That's he was, as they say, a beauty. He was indeed. 
<laughs> now, Kevin, you are, like me, huge Toronto Maple Leafs fan. And because of your interest and because of your love for the team and because of all your historical research and everything you've been involved in, you are the guy we have to ask. Is this the year for our beloved Toronto Maple Leafs? The first year since 2004 that we will get through at least a round of the playoffs. And dare I say it, the first championship in 56 seasons of futility. Kevin, is this the year? Well, I've said it every year since 67. <laughs> this is the year. <laughs> but, you know, I've got a much better feeling about it this year. October was pretty funky, Andrew. I, I was really concerned whether we were even going to make the playoffs. But uh, having said that, November was superb. They play as a team. Um, it, it's been wonderful to watch. I, I try and get to all the games, and it's just terrific. November was great. It was a November to remember. December has been uh, terrific so far, too. Uh, the game you know, against the uh, Calgary Flames, winning in overtime, allayed my fears of can we ever win in overtime and get the two points. It's been really fun to watch. To see Marner on a heater, to see Austin Matthews, you know, not as dominant as he was last year, but still a dominant player. My favorite player is, is Morgan Riley, and I've really missed him and was afraid that with him out, with Muzzin out, with Brody, who I really like as well, I mean, I like all of them, with all of these guys out, um, with with uh, uh, Jordy um, ben, ben, ben as well, mm -hmm. you know, all of these guys out, how are we going to get through? And yet playing as a team, they did exactly that. And so it's been wonderful to watch. I just hope that when Morgan comes back, hope that uh, that that Muzzin is going to be okay as well. Whether he comes back or not this season, we'll wait and see. But I just hope that helps as well. But if they can continue playing the way they are, I think our chances are pretty good that we'll get through at least one round. And we can only dream beyond that, Andrew. You heard it here first. And I got to tell you, we I had a great conversation with our mutual colleague, Sean Mitten, the author, who's also been on this podcast. And he told me, because as you know, he, he now lives in North Carolina. He said, people got to calm down in Toronto. Any other fan group outside of Toronto that had a team like the Leafs, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, John Tavares, Morgan Riley, with that kind of talent, would be thrilled. And here we are always questioning whether Keith should go and sh the Shannon plan's got to go out the window. So we should all just calm down. I'm with you. This is our year. Well, Leaf Nation is like that. We, we live and die with this team. If they win one game up and down uh, Front Street and, and uh, Bay, they're honking their horns and carrying on like they've won the Stanley Cup. I can only imagine if that, uh, that, sinks, that uh, silver chalice comes to town, what this city will be like. It'll... The roof will explode. Here we go. That's for sure. Now, Kevin, you've been great with your time. As we wrap up, I did want to ask, I'm sure you always got something in the hopper. What is next for you? Well, I continue to work at the Hockey Hall of Fame. Love my, my uh, job there. There's a book that I've wanted to write for a long, long time, and I'm working on it. I don't have a publisher at this point, but by surreptitious means, not surreptitious, I shouldn't say that, I found out that, that uh, I'm related to a, a gentleman who played in the 1945, during the war years, and he won a Stanley Cup with the uh, the Leafs in 1945. Gentleman's name is Jack McLean. Didn't know anything about him and fell into it to find out that, in fact, he's my dad's cousin. I call him, uh, I call him Uncle Jack McLean. He's since passed away, um, but he would probably be a second cousin. I guess that's it. But I, it's, a, it's a wonderful story 
of discovering him late in life, both my life and his, and changing both of our lives. And so I'm just writing, working on that. It's a wonderful story. I'm hoping I can find a publisher. If not, we'll self-publish. But that's one that I'm working on right now. Got a couple of other things in the hopper too, but that's the one that I'm most most excited about it at this point. Excellent. And of course, this is a time when everyone's getting stocking stuffers and buying gifts. So we must know where is the best place to purchase all your books, your whole collection, and where can we follow you on social media or wherever you like to be available? Ah, wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. So kevinshayhockey.com is my website. Not all of the books are available any longer. Some are out of print, but uh, but there are links there for the books that are available. Uh, the unfiltered book, as well as a couple of the more recent ones, are available at better book uh, better bookstores everywhere. <laughs> and uh, And I'm more of a Facebook guy than... Twitter or Instagram or whatever, but I'd love to have anybody who feels so inclined join me on Facebook. We do a lot of hockey. We do a lot of music. We have a lot of fun there as well. So if anybody feels so inclined, please join me and, and we'll, we'll go from there. Excellent. Well, I look forward. We're going to have a, a, a drink together and watch the Leafs because uh, you're a great guy and your enthusiasm for the Leafs is met by all our listeners and me as well. So it was great spending time with you, Kevin. Thanks for your stories. Thanks for the opportunity as well. Again, as I said, not legends by any means, but we, we certainly uh, have a lot of fun and, and uh, we have a lot of passion for the game and for, for music as well. It's been wonderful to talk to you, Andrew. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Wishing you continued success. The same to you as well. Thank you, Andrew. And to our listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast, powered by Henderson Brewing Company. And on behalf of Kevin Shea, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.